Bertrand Russell, uh, well-known uh, atheist philosopher from the 20th century. You remember the 1900s, way back in the 1900s, back in the dark days of the 1900s. Incredibly intelligent man, not a great friend of religion. He said it's a disease born of fear and the source of untold misery on the human race. But he was asked once, uh, what would he say if he, if he died and he found himself standing before God and it turned out there was a God, what would he say? Russell replied, I would probably ask, Sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Russell contends, I assume, and I don't know him personally, I'm just assuming, that the quality of the evidence was inadequate for someone of his caliber, of his, of his thinking to accept the quantity of the evidence was insufficient. If God wanted Russell, Bertrand Russell, this great mind, to respond to him, then he should have done a better job of supplying evidence. Russell also said, I would never die for my beliefs because I might be wrong. Anthony Flew, another famous atheist, more recent time, Anthony Flew passed away uh, April 2010. For many, many years, most of his life, contended that God could not be real. Not enough evidence, not enough sufficient good evidence. But as Anthony Flew uh, continued to ask, continued to search, to, to seek, to knock, uh, to, to ask, to seek, to knock, to steal a line from last week's sermon about persistent pursuit of God, as he followed the evidence, he found that the evidence actually led to the plausibility of God that there is undismissible evidence for the plausibility and the reality of God. But while Flew open to theism now, like he, he's like, yeah, well, there's a God, he could not go as far to say that this God of creation also interacted with humanity via supernatural revelation and activity, that he had some plan of salvation and redemption with respect to life, and, and, and life after death. That this God had a purposeful wish to be in relationship with us. He would only accept the evidence so far, I imagine. And I think, and, I, and again, I don't know Anthony Flew, so I'm just guessing here. He could only accept the evidence to the point of his own control. And that might be putting a generalization on a man who is very sincere about his endeavors, but this is the point where most people pull up. Yeah, God. But this is the point where they stop. Because this is the point uh, where they still get to control the kind of God that they're thinking about. This is the point where they still get to say to this God, oh, here's what I think you should do. And here's what I think you should be like. And, and here's where the evidence of your existence should be for you to, to sort of supply me with the kind of faith that you're asking for. And here it becomes a heart issue. Flew did admit that the evidence for the resurrection, the interaction of God with humanity, the, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. Flew says, it's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. I think, from evidence offered from the occurrence of most supposed miraculous events. 
flu cannot ignore the evidence that points to the existence of a God behind the universe. He's impressed with it. He marvels at it. He marvels at the quality and the quantity of the evidence that supports the central claim of Christianity. That this God entered into human history and through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God entering into human history offered an alternative narrative, an alternative relationship with God than the one we currently hold. Offered a different experience of life than the one we currently hold. Offered comfort and a concrete hope for the soul. But flew to my knowledge couldn't let that evidence shape his heart toward the offer, toward taking the offer on board. Flew marveled at it, but what Flew wouldn't do was respond with worship, which is belief or faith that lives in response to the evidence that we have about Jesus. It is a supernaturally empowered response. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, but that's what needs to take place. Many people have many reasons for why they say they can't or they won't believe in God as Christianity puts him forward, as the faith of Christianity describes. Often these are not uh, about academic or historical evidence uh, so much as they are about their experience of the evidence. The experience uh, that they have, you know, like how can God be all-loving and all-powerful when there's so much pain and suffering in the world? Why, why if he's an all-loving God, does that take place? Why did he take my spouse, my child, my job, my health? I need them more than him, surely. Why did my parents divorce? Why does God allow a war in Ukraine, floods in Bangladesh and India and New South Wales, famine in African countries, human rights abuses in northern Korea, China, these kind of places? Why is the world so messed up if God is as we claim good, loving, kind? What is God doing about this messed up world? My experience of the world is my evidence about God. At the heart of this section in Luke's gospel is, is that question of evidence. Evidence that will prove beyond all reasonable doubt, even unreasonable doubt, and the experience of life that Jesus is who he claimed to be. God's promised hope, transformation, and renewal for a world in turmoil, a world enslaved to self-destructions and addictions, a world where self-preservation takes precedence over justice and mercy and generosity, a world where parents divorce. A world where physical and spiritual decay assault the human condition. A world where evil takes place. Where the symptoms of sin bring chaos and keep us in conflict with each other and keep us apart and separated and at distance with God. Does the evidence point to Jesus being the stronger one that he claimed to be last week? The mighty promised saviour. The overpowerer of the stronghold and the effects of this evil in the world. The bringer of a new reality, a new kingdom of God's presence and peace. And not just into the world. That's not Jesus' claim. Jesus' claim is, is it coming into your life? It's coming into your heart. It's coming into your soul. That's Jesus' claim. Does the evidence support it? Well, Jesus is on the rise at this point in, in the gospel. Luke 
tells us in verse 29 that the crowds were increasing. Jesus is trending. All four uh, historic accounts of the life of Jesus, which we call the Gospels, uh, which form the body of the, the quality and the quantity of evidence that, that Anthony Flew uh, refers to, speak about how Jesus set himself apart from all other people in human history. This is the evidence. This is the historic documents. He sets himself apart. Tim Keller has this great way of, of, of summing it up, and I kind of like it. He sets himself apart with his staggering, the staggering egocentricity of his claims. Jesus said, I am God. I forgive sins. I give eternal life. I say you must repent in line with my teachings to qualify as a citizen of the kingdom of God, to receive God's blessing. Jesus said stuff like that. So he's a little bit more than just a, a good guy and a moral teacher, yeah? Added to that is the staggering non-egocentricity of his life. Radical claims, pretty boring life. Jesus lived a humble but perfect life of love of God, who he calls Father. Jesus lived in radical love and concern or, or gave radical love and concern for sinners, outcasts, the marginalists, tax collectors with whom he ate and drank and shared life with and offered his teachings. Jesus lived in service and aid of others, not in demand or expectations. He came to be a servant of all. Jesus had nowhere to call home, nowhere to lay his head. He had less physical wealth and, and, and assets than foxes and birds. Radical cl claims, attractive character, life, all of which were endorsed through Jesus' miraculous power over nature, over human affliction, which we've been seeing, and, and, and even over spiritual forces. That's the body of evidence. Divine authority, divine character, divine power. That's what's been attributed to this man. It's this radically unique and miraculous life that has people coming with increasing measure and population, and they're just coming and they're marveling at Jesus. And as they do, they're reasoning about Jesus. They're discussing Jesus. However, Jesus says that the appropriate thing to do to his teaching is to respond with faith in repentance and forgiveness. These have been the core tenets of his preaching, of his teaching, the core tenets of his message. His miracles and life are the visual, visual aids supporting. They're the supporting evidence of this message. And it seems despite the level of evidence that, that has that they have at hand that would cause you and I, modern people, the modern inquirer, just to kind of pump the brakes a little bit and go, no way. It's outrageous. Perfect life, divine miraculous powers. We're a little bit beyond that now. Good teacher, yeah, we can, we can swallow that. We'll take that. But the eyewitnesses were seeing it. They witnessed to it all. All of the life of Jesus, all of the miraculous signs. And what they are doing is they are busy reasoning the evidence to some other conclusion or requiring further provision of ongoing evidence about Jesus' claims. It seems that the evidence is actually not the issue. It seems that the hearts of the people 
could be the issue here. We saw in verse 14 last week that these increasing crowds, they marveled at Jesus. But this marveling didn't lead to repentance and transformed lives. It led to some accusing Jesus of being a false messiah, an antichrist, if you like, reasoning that he was at work or in, in league with Beelzebub, working with the dark prince. And it saw others demanding that Jesus do more. Give us a sign. Do something more. They want a sign reasoning that the evidence is not enough for them to respond. A little bit more than they might. I hear some people say that, oh, you know what? If I'd been around in Jesus' day, if I had actually been an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, to the evidence that he gave, then I'd have the kind of faith that Jesus is seeking. My faith would be rock solid. I'd respond how Jesus says to respond. But we see here, that's just simply not the case, which is our first clue that the evidence is not the issue. The heart is the issue. In our passage today, Jesus deals with people who say the evidence is not enough. It's not convincing enough. It's not clear enough. It's not tailored to my needs, my expectations, the little boxes that I wanted to push God into. For someone who has exercised such an extraordinary life of compassion and inclusion, you know, we look at the life of Jesus and he is a very compassionate man, a very inclusive man. His response to the demands for a sign and more evidence here are, are, are pretty jarring. Such claims, such demands are actually not seen as a willingness to believe if only adequate evidence was supplied. It's not even described as annoying, like, oh man, really, more, more? You want me to raise another person up? Or No. It's seen as evil, which is the second clue, that this is a heart issue. There is something in us that reasons away truth and belief that reasons away an appropriate response to Jesus. In verse 32, Jesus makes a comparison between a truly wicked and evil society, uh, that of the, the people of Nineveh, and, and the one now, this wicked generation, who refuse to respond to the signs that they have been given. But first, in verses 29 to 30, Jesus begins by saying uh, that he will give no further evidence. No sign is going to be given, which is where Mark pulls it up in his account. He just says no sign is going to be given. Luke goes a little bit further and he includes Jesus' cryptic reference to the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given apart from that of Jonah. The reference to the sign of Jonah is given its full scope in Matthew's account where Matthew includes Jesus' comparison between the, the time that Jonah spent inside uh, the, the, the belly of uh, a fish and his upcoming uh, time that he will spend between his death and his resurrection. The resurrection will be the ultimate and greatest sign that Jesus is the promised hope of God. Come into human history and, and into the human situation to bring the rule and the reign of God into people's hearts, overthrowing and replacing the chaos and the destruction that sin causes there, bringing peace. The resurrection will be the concrete evidence to validate the claims and the promises of Jesus. But this audience is yet to have that piece of evidence. How privileged, 
I mean, how privileged are we to have the full story, to have, to have the body and the book of evidence in its completion? And, and, and <laughs> I've got eight copies of it. It's, it's readily available. But nor was the fact that Jonah had spent three days inside the fish. So they haven't yet seen the resurrection. That's not a piece of evidence they have. But nor was the fact that Jonah spent three days in a fish that saw the Ninevites respond with repentance. That wasn't what made them respond. That story of Jonah and the fish, had it been known to the Ninevites, possibly, may have helped. That's not the point of Jesus here. The point here is their willingness to hear the message of God delivered to them through a prophet. A prophet not even from their own people. A prophet who came from the people they're trying to destroy. They're mortal enemies. They spear them. They pull their skin off. They stick it on their walls. That's what they do. And now something greater than the prophet of Jonah is amongst this people. As verse 32 says, a prophet from their own people who fits their long-awaited hopes, who is proclaiming a greater message than Jonah could have ever spoken. He's not the beneficiary of the miraculous. He's the provider of them. Walking their streets, preaching his own message of repentance and the need for a new heart that comes by grace because the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's only grace-shaped hearts that actually know how to respond and live in this kingdom appropriately. But unlike the Ninevites, who had none of their privilege, none of their story, none of their expectations about God and his promises and who he was. This generation, he says, wants something greater than Jesus, greater than what's been provided for them. But Jesus says, I'm all you're getting. We are far more privileged than the audience that, spoke, that Jesus spoke to. We have the whole witness about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. We have the compelling historic evidence of the resurrection, an event that is actually literally uh, attested to uh, through historic documentation uh, far greater than any of the other historic documents. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which which we take as historic fact. Uh, Livy's history of Rome, the annals of Tatticus, these things that we use to go, that's what life was like in Rome. That's what happened there. That's what happened in that war. We take them as fact. Compared to the weight of the, of the literature, the historic documents that form this book, they are utterly insignificant in comparison. It's like laughable when it comes to a historic evidence. But you see, it's not evidence that is the issue. It's our hearts. It's what our hearts do with evidence. We, we reason it away. Oh, this, this historic document has been muddled with, has been transformed. Even though this historic document has a lineage from uh, you know, 100 AD and you know, Caesar's, uh, who were they warring against? The, the, the Gauls, that first copy is from the 9th century. I'm not going to get into all that. It'll bore you to death. But we reason it away. 
we fail to give it a worthy inquiry because it's not a comfortable fit with our current cultural milieu. It's not a current fit with what we want, what we expect, our boxes. Jesus says that the Ninevites will bear witness against these eyewitnesses to Jesus' life because even a wicked pagan people knew how to respond to God when he showed up with a message from a prophet. Well, Jesus gives another argument along the line, same line of that of the Ninevites for the fact that it's not just about the quality and the quantity of his evidence, but the nature of the hearts that are hearing it, the hearts that are receiving it. And that is the story of a pagan woman who ruled a foreign kingdom, the Queen of Sheba. We hear about this here in verse 31. Jesus is very pointed here, though. He directs his attentions to, uh, to not to this generation in general, but he directs it to this generation's leaders. The men of this generation, the religious custodians of the story of God, mainly because, as Matthew and Mark point out, it's the, it's the scribes and the Pharisees who, who, who are making false claims against Jesus, who are rejecting the evidence. So now Jesus singles this mob out. He says to this privileged, self-righteous, elite group, that their failure to investigate the staggering egocentricity of Jesus' claims and the staggering non-egocentricity of Jesus' life will be held up against the actions and the investigations of a pagan woman, the Queen of Sheba. You lads know about her. You've been reading about her in, in our book here. You can read about her in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. This pagan woman just heard a whisper, a rumor, about Solomon, a king who ruled with unparalleled wisdom, justice, and progress, and how this king's greatness was attributed to this God who was known as the living God, the Lord Yahweh of creation. She just caught a story trending on social media while she was scrolling one day, and she saddled up her camels and she loaded them with tribute and treasures and she took the 2,400-kilometer trip to test if there was truth to the rumor, to test, to inquire, to, to go and investigate the rumor of evidence. And she discovered that there was far more truth than she could have ever hoped. It far exceeded the reports. It blew her categories of what was possible completely apart. And this pagan woman that ruled a foreign country, gave praise to God. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, your God. And now one greater than Solomon is here, whose truth and wisdom are unchallenged, whose justice and mercy unparalleled, whose rule and power unrivaled. But it's not going to end. It's not going to be like Solomon's. It's going to fall into chaos through sin. It's going to continue to, to be. And all you want to do and say is, I don't fit into your categories, your expectations, your demands. We don't like it that you keep telling good, moral, righteous people that, that the very best of them need to repent, that your goodness isn't going to save you, that your religiosity isn't going to save you, your morality isn't going to save you. You go to church, you tithe, you're good, but you reject the claims, the evidence. You don't investigate their legitimacy at any level. You actually reject the whisper of wisdom. 
This pagan woman sold the farm to investigate the wisdom of Solomon. And you are looking for all the reasons that you can find not to investigate what lies behind the wisdom that has been spoken to you in plain sight, that has been lived out before you, that has been validated through miraculous signs. This pagan woman will stand in judgment against you someday. This is not the first time Jesus uses comparisons of the lack of willingness of the Jews to see the evidence of the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus. Back in chapter 10, he let them know that had the things, had, the, had my ministry actually been exercised in Tyre and Sidon, in Sodom and Gomorrah, basically an axis of evil in the Old Testament, it doesn't get any crazier, they would have repented. You see, it's not about the quality and the quantity of the evidence. It's about hearts. And until our hearts are willing to ask, to seek and to knock, as Jesus summarized with our pursuit of God in prayer, we will always reason away our need for Jesus. We will always reason away the evidence around that. And that's the rather confronting question being asked in this passage today. No rainbows and unicorns here today. J.C. Ryle said, It's always the mark of a thoroughly unbelieving heart to pretend to want more evidence of the truth of religion. The truth is that God has given more than enough evidence. What holds people back is the pride of their own skepticism. Look at all the reasons I can come up with for not believing the evidence. There's nothing noble about saying, I just need more evidence. Jesus actually calls it wicked. It's, it's being disingenuous. Just be honest and say, I don't want to believe. Think it's a lot of rubbish. David Gooding says in his commentary, the fact is that the people who demanded another sign would not have been convinced by it or by any number of signs. Their seeking a sign was not an indication of their willingness to believe, if only adequate evidence was provided, but a rationalizing of their unwillingness to believe the perfectly adequate evidence they already have. The question being asked of us today is what have we done with the evidence? Maybe the evidence just starts with a rumor, a story that's just so crazy that you'd love it to be true, that there is a God, that this God has had his whole creation rebel against him and turn what he made good into utter chaos and ruin. What has this God done in response to that kind of madness? He has responded with grace, with a story that we call human history, that reveals the evidence of his character, that reveals the evidence of his power and he, how he uses both of them to fulfill a promise that he made way back when we rebelled, uh, to restore all things, to, to, to renew all things, to, to rescue rebels from the chaos they make without destroying them for it. And how that all finds its fulfillment in Jesus, who, who is God's ultimate response, who is God's evidential response that he does care, 
that he does have concern, that he does want to be in relationship. And as Jesus walked onto the stage of human history, we see the reversal of all that sin caused. We see the reversal of separation of relationships, of, of sickness, of death, of spirit, fear of spiritual forces and nature. Jesus has power over it all. And the resurrection is the evidence that that is the case. It validates everything he said, everything he claimed. Don't just dismiss it. People don't come back from the dead. We're scientific. We know better than that. Don't just dismiss it if it doesn't fit your categories. It isn't socially or culturally palatable or because it means you are no longer in control. All of those things are just, to quote Jesus, the wicked symptoms that rest in the hearts, keeping us from investigating the truth, keeping us from life, keeping us from grace, keeping us from Jesus. We have the great privilege of the full story. As Augustine famously said, Pick up and read. Ask, seek, knock. The promise from Jesus, the promise from God the Father, is the work of the Holy Spirit to overturn, to illuminate truth, to illuminate the evidence, and to transform the soul into repentance and forgiveness and hope and peace. And there's no test you have to pass. You don't need a heritage. You don't need to have... Christian parents or Billy Graham is your uncle. You don't need to have gone to a Bible college. You don't need to be a particular gender. You don't need to be from a particular race. You just have to thirst for righteousness and truth and want to pursue the evidence. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you that you are not a God of mystery. You are not a God who leaves us on our own to try and work it out. You have revealed yourself through human history. You have revealed yourself most profoundly through the Son. The extent of your love for us seen in his life, the extent of your concern for us seen in his death, and the extent of your promise for us seen in his resurrection. Our prayer this morning is that your Spirit would enable us to pursue the evidence to hear the rumor, the whisper, and not just dismiss it, but to bring that story to life that we might come to see the truth of it, the reality of it, that it would change us. For those of us that have been in that space, that have, that have had that truth come and live within us, we, we, we just thank you for how that transforms us, how that secures us, and how that gives us hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.